0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to the Hub. Hey, happy everything! Uh, Merry before Christmas Christmas Eve. Episode one forty-six in class with Carl. Good morning, sir. Hi morning
1: good morning good morning how are you good everything to everybody everything wherever
0: you are yes
1: um christmas in some places the home invasion hasn't started
0: you know what's interesting that across the globe people celebrate this christmas thing that i think was started as a marketing campaign Ooh. now i'm just Wait. wondering how it how it well, ends in good. africa to be in africa during christmas and to see white santa claus is like what is happening here? How did this? How did this make it across? Wow,
1: why, yeah. why are we doing Colonialism. this? Colonialism. We know how it worked. We know how it worked. I mean, it's funny. We we uh, we had a conversation last week. Myself, uh, Angie Porter, and Blithea Watkins. We were talking about the three hundred three creative versus Alenis case, the Supreme Court case where uh, they 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 got caught up in the Santa Claus examples. Remember that that whole concept? I mean, that was the whole you know where the uh, the lady out there in Colorado says that she will take any kind of client, any kind of gender. She wants to create a, she has a web, she wants to make a website company. She doesn't have one yet. She hasn't had one client. But they're suing because she says she doesn't want to design same-sex marriage websites if somebody comes. She'll take LGBTQ clients for anything else, but she doesn't believe in gay marriage. That's a smokescreen. The real issue is whether or not they can discriminate. That's what that's what these white nationalists are after. They want to eviscerate um, public prohibition on discrimination, and they're trying to use the First Amendment, freedom of expression. But anyway, in the oral arguments, we, the three of us were cracking up because in the oral arguments, they got into this back and forth about what you can and can't do as an artist, as a creative artist, as an expressive artist, So as a website designer, an expressive artist, or is this a public accommodation, a public service, once you open it up to everybody? And some kind of way, they get into a conversation about a white Santa Claus in a mall can, and, and uh, um, KBJ, of course, I love how RBG has now been replaced by KBJ Katanji Brown Jackson. Is like, so let me understand. Wait, 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 wait. this is at
0: the Supreme Court level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because because the white nationalists are using. I mean, this is John Roberts. Been John Roberts' strategy for twenty years. They're going to try to use the First Amendment. This is Hobby Lobby. This is the Cake Shop case from a couple of years ago. They want to say my freedom of expression allows me to discriminate. They're really after the public accommodation laws. That's the whole conversation, right? So um, so so they get into this conversation about whether or not a white Santa Claus can reject having black kids sit on his lap, and then. It's like okay, and then I think it was Elena Kagan made the example say okay. So, if a, a, can a black Santa Claus or a white Santa Claus, if a kid shows up in a Klan outfit, can they say I don't want you on my lap? The answer to that legally is yes, they can say that because it isn't the color of the kid's skin. It's the Klan outfit. The Klan outfit is hate speech. So they're trying to figure you know, but then Sam Alito jumps in because she says, well, if it was a black kid with a Klan outfit, could the Santa Claus reject them? The point Kagan was making was, even if a black kid showed up in a Klan outfit, it isn't the color of the kid's skin, it's the Klan outfit that you can legally reject on. This is, this is not protected speech. Alito cracks a joke. Alito says, yeah, you see a lot of black kids walking around with clan outfits. Now, not only was the joke insensitive, what you hear on the tape is all this laughter in the chambers. These white boys, Alito's racism is clear. He can't hide it no more. got But the fact that they're laughing, that's not a joke. Kagan was making a point to make the distinction between speech and skin color, but you jump in like this, and then Kagan tries to save him. She says, well, uh, uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. In other words, but I, I sell that to say that in this season of Christmas, white Santa Claus showing up in Africa or anywhere else, uh, given that Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are African exports that have been interpreted now all over the world differently. Can it you just can
0: you repeat that? I'm just oh, yeah, that, of course yeah.
1: African expo- I mean, the yeah. Abrahamic faith traditions, that whole conversation is an African story.
0: That's, we- I, I was saying, like, all right, what why why are we mad with Kyrie and all these people? like anybody with half a bit of sense, I know from Moses to Noah, all of y'all's favorites were right. in Africa, married Africans, were African. It was, af- that landmass was Africa before they created the Middle East. That didn't exist. These borders didn't exist. This was the landmass of Africa, like, what are we talking about here? This is so weird to me that, oh, the original, yes, the original Hebrews had hair of wool, skin of bronze, so did your Jesus and everybody else. I mean, it's just weird. Like whiteness is a hell of a drug that we have now created this space where you got Megan Kelly, whatever her name is, angry about Jesus and I'm like, you know y'all Jesus is black, right?
1: No, that Jesus is
0: if, if your Jesus is white, then that ain't Jesus and um what does that mean so if, if you wake up and god said my son looks like gray car you you you're not going to be christian anymore like right. i'm just like what what's your what what are you yeah. going to do about that because that's the reality
1: that's right well is john henry clark whose birthday is the first of january so next week on the 31st uh the next to the last day of kwanzaa we'll save him and uh dr ben actually Yosef Benyakin's birthday is the 31st of December. So we'll get a chance to talk about Dr. Ben. And of course, you know what? You just look at this. This is how you teach. I am going to pull one of Dr. Ben's most controversial books, um, The African Origin of the Major Western Religions. We'll talk about that next week on the birthday of Dr. Yosef Benyakin. And I got a copy over there. So, but as John Clark used to always say, once we start trying to read books of faith as history books, then the, prob- the problem starts. Because everybody gets to pick their faith. And so I got no problem with Megyn Kelly saying that her Jesus is white. My problem comes in when Kyrie Irving says that his Jesus is black, that you now want to make him get on his knees and apologize, because that's really what it's about. And I mean, but of course, we know that the creative force has no human color. The whole thing starts with anthrocentrism. You know, how do you try to reduce God to a human being? This is why Howard Thurman, I, I pulled his mood of Christmas again. Here we are on Christmas Eve, you know, in a kind of lighthearted. And he's got a beautiful meditation on the new year that just leads us into this. Um, but once you start trying to, in fact, uh, it's apocryphal. It's attested to St. Augustine, but I've never been able to find the direct quote. So I just always say attested, uh, although it's, it's it's quite a quite a observe. It's quite a comment. Um, and I won't say Augustine said it, but the the, the the quote is this God created human beings in God's own image. And ever since then, humanity's been trying to return the favor. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, that's what we do. If we want to see a pair of hands shaped Karen Hunter, they should look like Karen Hunter. But if down the street, you know, somebody else wants to see those hands shape them, they should
0: look like them. But I mean, it's weird. We've we reduced humanity to skin color, too. Mm-hmm. So. Like as if, no, we didn't.
1: We were, yeah, we were
0: taught, you know, yeah, we were taught to reduce humanity to a lack of melanin or a a plethora of melanin as if we can be contained in the skin that we're in. Yes. As if.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the whole whole question of, uh, of colonialism, of imperialism, of settler colonialism. I mean, imagine that we have three quote unquote Abrahamic faith traditions. The first one is not a proselytizing tradition, Judaism, which is, of course, as we talked about, looking at—I mean, there, there's no, there's not even a debate about this. All three of them are derivative. Judaism, being the first in line historically, is what Jan Asman, the Egyptologist, would call a second-order faith tradition. In other words, you borrowed the corpus of what you say you believe from the Egyptians, and then you made up a story about you being persecuted by the Egyptians so that you could then justify saying that this is your religion. But when you scrutinize, you know, uh, Genesis, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, the whole thing is ripped off. From the Egyptians. But in order for you to bring that off, you put in Exodus, this story that they were persecuting you. Then you make up 10 commandments that you took directly from them with the exception of the first, which says that you can't have any gods before you. There were other gods. Shh, be quiet. This is what Osman would call a second order religion. A second order religion or way of knowing takes from the first order religion, the original one, the one that comes out of the culture, which is why when you look through those first books. Even Moses, Mesu in the Egyptian means to be born. Even the words come out of the ancient Egyptian language. But then out of that, what do you get? Now you get Christianity. Christianity and Judaism depart on the question, as we know, of the divinity of Jesus. Right. And, and so what does the New Testament do? It gloms the Old Testament onto itself with those begats. This is the bloodline. This is the genealogy. We're going to get the momentum of memory going, and then we're going to say, and now Jesus. And the Jews are like, yeah, that, that ain't the guy. And then what happens? The Christians say, yeah, that's the guy. Okay, well, fine. Go with God. Fine. Go with God. And then they go, then here come the Muslims, and they say, Jesus, yeah, he he, he was a prophet. Wasn't the last prophet, though. What? Yeah, Muhammad. Peace be upon him. And so, <laughs> and so it just keeps going. But the farther it goes, the more we forget that everybody gets to make their choices. But the problem is, finally, Judaism doesn't proselytize. You're not out converting people. It's very much like the Afri- African traditions. The, Af- the Africans, well, you see this in Ephah, you see it among the Igbo, you see it, like, no God except through your ancestors. God created everything. And when we see us sitting here, Karen Hunter had nothing to do with this. It was your mother and father. Greg Carr had nothing to do with this. This is my mother and father. And then their mother and father, and their mother and father, all the way back to the creative moment. Well, here comes Christianity and says, if you don't believe what I believe, you're a heathen. Huh? Yeah. From the Greek, from the heat, not even from the Hebrew, from the Greek, ethnic. The same root of the word heathen is the same root of the word ethnic, other. You're other than me. And so now I'm gonna colonize your mind. Here come the Muslims. If you're not a Muslim, then I gotta convert you. It's the proselytizing and the conversion that gets it in trouble. Now you converted these ways of knowing into aggressive acts of domination. Now you are trying to make people believe what you believe. Or else. And the Africans, of course, had no problem because when they, when these Europeans came back into Africa after having left and adapted to where they were millennia earlier, coming back, they said, we're going to convert you out of Christians. And the Africans are like, what does that mean? That means that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And they're like, nah. And then he said, well, Jesus is like you. And they said, oh, so he's an ancestor? Oh, no problem. Come on. And then they realized, wait, you saying if I take Jesus, I got to get rid of my ancestors? Y'all crazy. And that's when they start rolling. (laughs) But of course, that's never stuck for us. Black people that call themselves Christians crack me up because they still venerating ancestors. Still, uh, We're going to talk about that this week and next week in the class on Monday with cultural meaning making and movement and memory. Our music, our art, our ways of knowing, all that stuff has not displaced Africa. But here we are in Christmas season, and now everybody just says happy holidays, so we don't start no beef.
0: <laughs> you know uh, speaking of beefs, you, what uh, you got? no so I bought this book, right? I bought this book oh, can the- Yes, and, make hold it. Hold on, this is not this is not the, the story. Yes, so I'm putting books away in my library. Why this book already there? And I, I was like, You know why? How many double do du- du- duplicates or triplicates do you? I was like, I know car got like three many, of everything many, oh God, this many book already but i didn't read it yet and um just bought it because you talked about it and i already have it i know I, I gotta stop doing that so i gotta mm-hmm. first go into my so this is gonna be a gift to somebody or one that's here and one that's in my library
1: absolutely when, when you come uh some of the authors who are here uh, still at the museum. As I said, Kinshasa, who was the force behind that book, and so many others at the museum, she is retired, although she's director of merit. I expect she'll be around the museum. I hope she takes some time away and then comes back. Uh Paul Gorillo, who Gardillo, who is the historian, uh, Mary Elliott. So many of them are still around the building. So okay, maybe I'll who,
0: sign. I'll get yeah, it.
1: come on down, tuck it in your bag, and we'll walk through the it. building and it. you just everybody sign. For you, so. I was like, Yeah. I was putting, I was
0: like, wait, I just
1: it happens all the time. It happens all the time. I mean, in fact, I remember many years ago, uh Charles Bloxon, as we talked about last week, Mr. Bloxon's birthday passed. Bloxson is was notorious. Book collectors are notorious for that. Two or three copies, duplicate. Copies. Sometimes we buy copies to do exactly that, give them away.
0: Well, that's a mistake. Uh, because I hadn't read it yet. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been in my my psyche. Like, I got that book already because I read it.
1: Well, well, then let me warn you then because uh today uh-huh. and next week. Since it's the end of the year, I pulled a few books that came out in 2022 okay. as my favorites. And so some of them we've talked about before. There's probably one or two in here we haven't, but we cover so much.
0: I'm going to have to do uh, Dorothy Wesley's uh, Decimal System, the, the revised yes. version. I'm going to have to have a whole catalog so I can go check my catalog That's for the- whether or not I have the book already and if it can be checked out.
1: That is our vision going forward. Yeah. Cap- of our books and i love how you've engendered this habit of people photographing their libraries and photograph and sharing pictures of their books that newbie narrative i love that
0: yes especially with the little ones like i'm encouraging oh. people to build you know you build a child's library you know i'm putting books away and there's a book that my mother bought me when I was four years old. It's, mm. it's a Bible book, of course, because you know you got Of course, of course. I should bring it down, but it's fragile, you know. It's 50 it years old. It's almost it's right. 50 years old. It was a 50-year-old book, and it's still Ooh. holding, holding up. So I'm like, okay, all right. I mean, I remember reading, reading it, her reading it to me and then me reading it on my own and, you know, learning about Daniel and Goliath and all it, you know, as a child. And uh, it's, you know, big picture book, those things that, you know, you can't, you know, all the gifts that you give, you know, the easy bake ovens and the train sets and all of the dolls and everything. Yes, It's those moments that you spend, um, you know, for forging relationships and and, and building your child's world through through words uh, i think are the things that they carry with them throughout their lives so that's
1: right well i mean it, it's so interesting you say that because again thinking about cultural meaning making which is our fourth uh fifth of the six okay. conceptual categories when we start talking about art and books are art music is art like you said those little books Particularly those early books, I, I I got some of those same books. Those cho- in fact, that's when they stuck the white Jesus in our head, right? He knocking at the door with the bloody heart, with the thorns around it, and got his hand up, and all that stuff. It comes, but but art creates the only shared meaning we have as human beings. I mean, if you strip out art, all we have is individual experiences and a perpetual succession of fleeting impressions. In other words, if you don't have something to anchor yourself in time and space, then those and the minute you touch that book, your mom is there where you were when you were reading was there something you were eating at the time, the feeling you had art allows us to have shared meaning. That's why art is so important. I mean, you know, we see every generation and this is the difference between cultural meaning making and and movement and memory, our final category, cultural meaning making speaks to a moment in time and space. How do you mark that moment in time and space movement and memory allows us to think about what ways do we preserve those moments as they endure over time what makes it through time and space and what doesn't
0: which is why we have to be i think even more discriminating fastidious um zero tolerant for people who make art that perpetuate a negative image of ourselves whether it's having a, a a wet ass um you know p word or whether all of you know, the ends and the b's and the drugs yeah. and the things and the, thing. Yeah, you know, the yeah. one thing to chronicle a period of time like the message so one, it's one thing to do that you know broken glass everywhere people you know it's one thing to do that it's another thing to have a constant beat of degradation that we do unto ourselves to the point where we don't have the capacity to even embrace all right we're something's happening here this is wrong there's a clear wrong and right there's no debate about it we don't even have a clear wrong or right because our our music our art and our artists because we love them so much are telling us these blurred blurred visions of what is right and wrong and and you know we've had a couple of ancestors musically you know make transition and today you're going to honor one Mm -hmm. and you know I know every lyric to the songs that come around with, you know, it's like just background noise probably for me as a kid, but I know these lyrics. I can't give you lyrics today for any of these.
1: And you won't be able to.
0: And I don't want to, because if I read them, which I do periodically on the radio, I will read the Billboard type, you know, number one song. And I'll start reading the lyrics and I'm like, I don't even know what you're saying. But I know that there's a lot of a lot of curse words and drink drinking stuff and sex stuff and you know and I'm not being a prude about it because we can have fun, but sure, like fifty have. years from now when will this be on the music? I mean, will it be music? I don't know. But you know, if it if it comes on the kid, that's my song, and they can and these kids can repeat it chapter Earth, these lyrics. These kids can. Yeah. Is yeah. this what we want to repeat over and over again? Yeah. I know it, y'all it like the people, but come on. Like, it will.
1: It will. It will and it won't. This is, again, the difference between culture meaning making and movement of memory. Cultural meaning making would attest to the fact that when a song like that comes on 50 years from now, the one, the person who was six years old at the time, or who was in college at the time, or at the club at the time, they're going to say, that's my song. Their mm. grandchildren are going to look at them like, you have lost your damn mind. And then they're going to play, close the door, let me... Gr-. and everybody gonna start or they gonna say i'm gonna make sure i'm right before i let go and then everybody gonna start dancing what is movement in memory what is the thing that endures these songs are not going to endure and all you got to do to test that proposition is ask yourself. As, let's ask ourselves when we were in college what songs do are played now If you hear it now and we say that's our song but the but the 12 year olds the 15 year olds the 25 year olds looking like i ain't never heard that song there are songs like that for us and i'm saying even i mean i tell the students at howard all the time we have a middle school on campus i say while these young people are over there and this may be 10 years ago or five years ago talking about kendrick lamar if you go over and mention lupe fiasco they're gonna say who is that Said, that was Kendrick before Kendrick, but it happened five minutes ago and it didn't endure. Now, at the same time, if you go in there and say, I've been really trying, baby, the seven year old going to start singing. Let's get it on. What do you know about getting it on? You know nothing about it. Get- they were talking about say, but gay endures. And then you're going to listen to what's going on. Why? Because the theme endures. When we saw Coolio make transition and we saw that we bought, we all watched that video, you know, Gangster Paradise. No, that was pastime paradise. The theme remains. Movement and memory as we move through time and space, what things endure. And, you know, WAP ain't the first song about sex. We know that Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey talking about sweet jelly roll and all that. But uh, And Millie Jackson. Millie Jackson, for sure. No question. Them blue records, them records we couldn't, wouldn't to play or whatever absolutely but you know wop you know in a moment i mean obviously you know we saw this resolution this court case and it's heartbreaking to see how we are at each other's throats no i'm sorry let me not say that we're not at each other's throats how certain individuals are assuming that there's a proxy war between black people and i'm saying there's no proxy war you know what wait five minutes because you know and in fact as a as a as a as most deaf once said in one of these uh, songs they had the beef remix, beef beef is not what Jay said denies. Beef is when the working folks can't find jobs. You know, <laughs> in other words, he said, you know, beef is not what 50 would do in a uh, you know, say I'm, I'm trying to remember the lyrics now, but the point, the point most deaf is making, Yasin Bey is making the point that Brother Dante is making is that what we call beef and say, he says some beef is big and some beef is small. Y'all call beef is not beef at all. Real, beef is real life happening every day. And it's realer than them rhymes that I gave to K. Slay. In other words, you know, a sister gets shot. Thankfully, not mortally wounded. Painfully, she got shot at all. A brother goes to jail. People choosing upsides. Stop. Can we stop and consider the fact that this field of violence has so created such A disturbing social structure, that even in our governance relations, who we are to each other, we find ourselves at each other's throats. And so, I mean, that's all I'm gonna say about that. But in terms of what you mentioned, in terms of hip hop and movement and memory, I'm I'm getting ready because now this is the sweet spot. At least it was the sweet spot before the renewed normal. The sweet spot for teachers is usually right between. The halves. We're in halftime now, which is why, you know, at this moment now, teachers at, uh, in all valences, kindergarten, first grade, eighth grade, 12th grade, college, graduate school, wherever, law school, dental school, not the healthcare professions. professions. You know, I, I look at people like my uh, good friend Reba Kelsey, who's an assistant dean of Morehouse School of Medicine. I'm like, Reba, when do y'all get off? But t- sometimes the medical schools don't take no time off. But at any rate, you know, this is the time when I'm looking at the spring semester at my job and saying, okay, I want to switch some things up. I teach the hip hop class in the spring and there've been a couple of books that came out. Actually, these are not two I had on my list, but they did come out in 2022. And as you mentioned, the profit made me think about these things. Um, this is one by Jonathan Abrams called the come up, the come up an oral history of the rise of hip hop. This is an excellent book because it's basically a bunch of interviews with folks who were present in the formation periods of hip hop. And I'm thinking maybe I could assign this book as a companion piece to one of the books I always use, which is Jeff Chang's book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Because I like how uh, Professor Chang narrates the social structure, the social structure in the Caribbean, the social structure in the United States. And and kind of brings that as the context for discussing governance formations between African people as this thing emerges that we call, in terms of cultural meaning making, the social structure gives it the label hip hop. I like that book. And I said, well, I could assign that book still because it's cheap and they're, they're, they're electronic versions. But I, I've been reading this come up, the come up, Jonathan Abrams book, and I like how how, how it reads. Of course, we have the challenge of literacy now because literacy has shifted so that even getting folks to read is is quite a quite a challenge in, in terms of university based education. Not so much a challenge for us in narrative and Nubia and even us in class as we get into these broader audiences because folks are here because they want to be. but I'm saying out to say that you know there it's amazing pause. It's not amazing. It's actually quite understandable. It's striking how little each generation knows of previous generations in terms of the social structures. There's some songs that endure. There's some cultural meaning making that endures and kind of finds its way in the movement and memory. But so much of what we discuss in the hip hop course I teach is really about background and context for the things that might've peaked through. So the students might know hip hop, a heavy, a heavy, did a hip, hip, I really don't stop. Okay, that's right. Okay, so let's look at Sylvia Robinson. Let's look at Sugar Hill Records. Let's look at the context Then, which if you pull on Sylvia Robinson, then you're going to get what? You're going to go back to Motown. You're going back to the 60s and 70s. You're going to go back. Oh, really? I didn't know all that. Yeah, and we hear boom, boom, boom boom, 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 We got to talk about Nile Rodgers. <laughs> we got to talk about Sheik. We got about the era of disco. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Okay, but here we go. And before we can get to the Sugar Ham Gang, we got to go back 20 years. And so it's like, oh, wow. And that momentum then allows students to begin to fill in gaps and they begin to understand cultural meaning making is about people in a particular moment marking their time and space and all the forces that are working with them and often against them help them do that to express themselves or to prevent them from doing that because there's a long distance between 1978, 79, and 2022 in terms of what makes it to commercial airwaves, to mass media and of course the disruption of social media with uploading and downloading and all that has just, you know, it may seem to have disrupted everything and it did but it also remains strikingly consistent with what gets curated as just Black music. It's very different. So anyway, to come up is one. And then then of course there's another one that just came out by uh Joe Coscarelli entitled Rap Capital. Um, an Atlanta story. This is a case study of Atlanta and the South. And there's a lot been written on the South, a lot been talked about on the South, and of course, with the proliferation now of podcasts and YouTube videos, and everybody talking all the time about everything. It's like trying to drink out of fire hose. It's like Paul. I'm just looking for some guiding narratives. And I want to sign this book. I think this is just going to be a background book. But it's important because when we look at what we're considering to be cultural meaning making now, you can't really understand what what ends up in our ears and in our eyes without understanding the context, which includes a social structure for which commerce has driven everything. And the the more you get to just saleable units, I mean, I know there's a lot of people who are watching the... uh, what, what do they call it, Prop? Is it the final chapters, The Best Man? I haven't started.
0: Yeah, The Best Man, The Final Chapters. I finished it.
1: Oh, then, then without any spoiler alerts. I mean, because we got The Best Man right. That was the first one. Right. And then The Best Man, Holiday.
0: Right, right. And the final Chap- chapter.
1: Yeah. And with one exception, for those who haven't watched any of them and who want to binge, there's an event, of course, that takes place in the second movie that right. will prevent one of the anchor characters from being in the third. But, but that having been said, it just feels like from the reviews I've read and confirmed this because we were talking a little bit about it, that the market is, is, is driving this new iteration. No, it's movement and memory for sure, because that first one is of a piece in terms of cultural meaning making of a particular moment in time in Black America. Love Jones and then Brown Sugar. And not this Love of, basketball, yes, of, absolutely loving basketball. But but it seems to me the farther you get away from that movement. And memory, the more the market is invading that—I don't want to say pure, but that kind of anchoring time and space moment. Because there's something about those early movies, Soul Food, that you know it, it, it feels like you've engendered something that is durable. I don't know, but
0: what? 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 Your- I also feel like it's 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 like family, you know, when you mm-hmm. see Regina Hall and Neil Long and. Tay Diggs and Tay Diggs to a lesser extent, because I don't think we ever connected with him as much as Morris Chestnut and Crazy and <laughs> Howard. You know, uh, Harold Pir- Pirineau, Um, When you, you know, those those are folk we grew up with, and so in in all of those movies you're talking about, most of them were in it. You know, there was like this constant, like you know, we see them, and th- for me, it's like, damn, they look good. <laughs> look good. So it's I'm reading it's, this over and over again, like they're ageless. Is that? <laughs> they look- more Chestnut regina hall to me both of them look better than they looked 20 years ago
1: which is you not know? unusual no it's and it's, i was it's, like it's this is amazing age the the
0: possibilities are endless for us
1: now age is age is something that enhances beauty when you understand it's not just how you look it's your aura you know the west is the culture for which artificial physical representation is an obsession so it doesn't surprise me that you would say that because, of course, he looks better. He's older.
0: Yes. <laughs> you, know yes. totally yes. you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. But, you know, so it it, it feels like home, you know, watching them, mm-hmm. watching these characters and their interactions. And you know that's not, you know, they're acting, of course. But, you know, you feel like you know them. So there's that. And then, there, of course, there's cameos of people, y'all's, y'all's people that y'all's like out there. You know, and you're like, oh, there's, you know, somebody I know in there. So they dropped a lot of cameos and, you know, so that.
1: Does it feel like? I mean, it's interesting when you see those kind of things. It almost feel like market research. We need to we'll put someone somewhere and get this demographic. We'll put someone somewhere. No,
0: I, I think no. I think it's it feels because Malcolm Malcolm D Lee. I think he's Spike Lee's cousin. He's Spike oh yeah, Mal- yeah, uh-huh. he's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, who directed and produced, it, et cetera. You know, they, they're they're all part of the culture. So there's an MSNBC storyline that feels very familiar to what's going on right now with the, you know, black people on MSNBC and what the, you know, and Nia Long is in the position of the woman that might, I don't know, like, it's weird how the parallels are happening. You know, there's this whole, they do this whole protest thing, you know, this back to Africa thing. There's like, there's, there are themes in here that are like, okay, y'all are paying attention to what, and I feel like many of the characters are also kind of leaning in. Cause I, you know, you, you watch, this might be their, their journey. You know, I've had the pleasure of, of interviewing Sanaa Lathan, and you know, like, and her dad. You know, like, she comes from consciousness, so she's no not out no there. No question. You know, not just out there, you know, uh being in Hollywood. And I've interviewed Neil Long, uh, who's not just out there, you know. And it, and also that her personal relationship right now is kind of mirrored through this. I was like, I wonder if mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if. Uh, it's interesting, you know. So it's like, and we all are kind of glomming on to what is happening in their individual lives as well, especially with her. And you're yeah. like, oh, this feels wildly familiar.
1: Oh, that's very interesting. I, I, I had to. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna watch. what I mean, it's I'm fun.
0: At- it is fun. You know, it's like nostalgia. Oh, yeah. It's it's and they and they do the flashbacks. They take us back, you know, to the early <laughs> days and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, and it's an episodic, you know, it's, it's a series. So it's not a movie. So you, you're you going to carry through eight episodes uh, of this back and forth. And, you yeah. okay. know,
1: which is good. <laughs> least, man. You know, it's funny because, I mean, we all have our anchors. And uh, one of the ancestors we'll be talking about today who just made transition out on the West Coast in Washington State, the great Tom Bell. Um, which is crazy because given the fact that Joe Teresa made transition early, we talked oh, about sickness. San- talked
0: about them, yeah.
1: Philadelphia International, man. We gonna come back. But, you know, it's interesting because uh, Tom Bell said, you know, the only bell that's associated with Philadelphia has a crack in it. So I'm gonna do something about that. I'm gonna write these melodies. <laughs> and, and they would ask, so he said, well, you know, Tom Bell, whose father was, uh, well, his parents from Jamaica, he's born in Kingston, Jamaica. He moved to Philly when he was three years old. Uh, his parents were musical. So Bell gets his first introduction to musical instruments around four years old. Uh drum kits, you know, woodwinds, brass. And you know, when you hear Tom Bell, and we're going to talk about a lot of Tom Bell songs today, because I mean this is the end of the year, this year, this week, and next week. We're going to uh we just came off of three heavy weeks, and I think very important weeks. In fact, that are foundation for uh something that I want to try to do, which is write a little bit about this, you know, God bless Deion Sanders. God bless Shannon Sharp. God bless everybody who, you know, has been so spun around by white supremacy that they somehow start talking crazy, but you know, God bless them. Go with God. But we just came off of a three part conversation in that, which I think opens the door for a more important conversation. And as we kind of close out the year, the calendar year, you know, today, you know, with the transition of this ancestor, it gives us a chance to explore not only cultural meaning making, which those of people, who, those of us, everybody who's in narrative in Nubia, you know, that is uh Monday night, we will be uh, the first day of Kwanzaa, actually, the 26th, we'll be looking at cultural meaning making, the readings are posted there, uh, we're doing Robert Ferris Thompson, um, the first section, a lot of it's artwork of this Exhibition Catalog, African Art and Motion, from 1974. Um, an exhibition catalog where Robert Freire Thompson explores cultures from various parts of Africa, uh, West Africa, Central Africa, South Africa, a little bit north and, and east, but not much. But he's looking at these canons and um, in other words, these practices among African people that you find a lot of different places so we're going to be talking about that uh the stronger power that comes with youth vital aliveness flexibility a multiple meter uh preservation and suspension of the beat uh looking smart how to correct entry and exit all these things laying a foundation again as we kind of close part one of our course that we're doing and get ready for part two but in the process uh, of doing that, we figured, you know, today with the transition of this ancestor, Tom Bell, we take a moment to think about cultural meaning making, which is basically the question we ask in Africana studies in this African studies conceptual category framework we have. We ask this question, you know, how did or do African people create meaning? Art, for lack of a better term, but much broader than art, but we we'll would say art for now, in any particular moment in time and space when people are creating, they're drawing from their experiences. They're also connecting to previous experiences. And so they're moving forward. So in thinking about that, you know, thinking about this week and then got the news the other day that Tom Bell had made transition. One of the first things that came to mind, of course, it's like when Bill Withers made transition. It's like when, you know, so many others, Made transition. Maybe next week we'll call some ancestors. Uh, when I was in Atlanta last week, uh, Andre Talley was on my mind. He made transition, of course, near the beginning of this year, Andre Leon Tally, the fashion designer. But there may be people who don't know that he's a graduate of North Carolina Central, who, of course, won the Celebration Bowl. And that was a whole nother conversation. I had to do that another time. We did a little bit on Monday night, but I'll come back because it. it was like the ancestors were like, you are not going to win this game. And I was, a, I, I'm an eyeball witness, as old folks would say, to, to what happened and Mercedes-Benz dome on on, uh, on Saturday, last Saturday. If I wasn't there, it would be hard to attest, even if I watched it on television. But sitting there and watching the whole thing, it was more than just human beings in that building. Trust me on that, in terms of a way of knowing. But at any rate, thinking about these ancestors, I said, Well, Tom Bell made transition. And in my mind, all the Tom Bell songs started coming back as an adopted Philadelphian. You know, so I reached out to you know two of my pillars. Young people who are my former students now out there in the world, both native Philadelphians, uh, one of whom is my, my teaching assistant. I mean, for my money, the best TA in the world. She certainly taught the most students. She was the senior TA for our freshman seminar class before they <laughs> deconstructed it in a moment of something. I'm not sure. But at any rate, uh, she's doing her dissertation on the sound of Philadelphia. And she's in African studies, but also psychology. She's doing this read of lyrics and music. And she's, you know, got this survey. She's testing this intergenerational concept that she has uh, of identity, Black identity as it relates to these songs and these experiences. And and she, uh, Ms. Carter, Angela Carter, and the brother who is a lieutenant now in the Philadelphia Fire Department, my man, Mike Leake, uh, who both of them Howard grads, I had them as undergraduate students. But Mike is uh, like Angela. They're very, very deeply, deeply invested and steeped in the history of the sound of Philadelphia, and they are thoroughgoing Philadelphians. So I texted them and said, you know, "Let's talk about this because they both, you know, Tom Bell's music." But as I was, we were texting. The the first song came to mind. This is a fork in the road. Yeah, love's last episode. Mm there's nowhere to go Mm -hmm. you made your choice and now it's up to me to bow out gracefully though you hold the key baby whenever you call me i'll be there that's tom bell in the spinners Oh my god, around. Oh, around. and you know what, what blew my mind now. This is we're gonna bleed a little bit between cultural meaning making because that song with the spinners in the early 70s, Tom Bell is producing. We're gonna talk a little bit about the life of Tom Bell. He's producing, he's part of this trio with two folk who still walk the earth, Leon Huff and Kenny Gamble. We talked about Joe Teresa, who was at Sigma Sound Studios. This is sound of Philadelphia. You know mother, father, sister, brother, MFSB. <laughs> you understand? Know this is the sound of Philadelphia, but 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 uh, but Tom Bell, while he was partners with them, he was partners with them. He never became part of the entity business entity known as Philadelphia International because he wanted to work with whoever he wanted. Tom Bell worked with David Bowie, Tom Bell worked with uh Elton John, Tom Bell worked with. Uh, the Jacksons, Tom Bell worked with whoever the hell he, Johnny Mathis. Tom, D. R. Ward, D. R. Tom Bell said, D.I. Warwick looked like a cat when she sings. She looked like a cat. She sounded like a cat. Someone write a song with cat in it and see what she does. She said, She sound like a cat. I mean, Tom Bell's genius really is no, hard. Yo, not a cat. Yes. In <laughs> fact, some of the people call him the black Burt Bacharach. And I'm like, That's a brilliant social structure category. Maybe Burt Backrack on the best day of his life would be the white Tom Bell. But let me be very clear, and I'm a Burt Back Rack fan. Anyone who had a heart with planes and boats and trains are passing by. You hear Deion, Dion. Deon, Lord have mercy. Dion Warwick sing that. You hear that little bell at the beginning where she just brings it right in. You are from another part of the world. And you hear the, you hear the, uh, the string start swelling. You tell me, he said, I'm so, I'm waiting here like I wanted to. I promise to. I'm waiting here, but where are you? It's very loud. She just can tease that note. Oh, trains and boats and planes. D.I. Warwick is a beast. If y'all have, I mean, particularly young people, sit with D.I. Warwick. I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about that. What's friend? That's what friends are for. It's very nice. I'm not talking about deja vu, which is cool. Go back to D.I. Warwick in the 60s and 70s. Go to her sister, Dee Dee. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know people are going to be going out here and watching this Whitney Houston movie. And I, I hope, I don't know, have you seen it proper? Are you planning to go see it?
0: Uh, uh, no. Okay, me neither. But the point I, is that uh, I'm going to let Whitney rest in peace. Y'all doing too much. Like, or, or,
1: or if you want Whitney Houston, play Whitney Houston. Hey, let's stop. Let's stop. Let's stop. Let's you, let know, that you know, I'm saying but 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 uh, now, now in terms of movement and memory, I tell you what, 50 years from now, Professor Hunter, do you think they'll still be playing Mariah Carey's Christmas song.
0: Which one? I, I, you know, yes, of course they will be. Yes, yes it will be. Yeah, all I want from Christmas is all you. Want, right. Absolutely, it will be played. Absolutely. Yes. Certain
1: things in this is this is the whole point. Yeah. And so Tom Bell, that song came to mind not just because I love the Spinners, everything. Tom Bell, Oh Sadie. Tom Bell produced that Ooh. early one Sunday morning. Hey, look. Every time that song plays. I'm back in Nashville. We gotta go to Sunday school. My daddy worked every day of his life. He sleep. Now eventually he got up by that became a deacon at the church. But my mama got everybody ready. Breakfast was on the table. There was no time to eat. Come on, y'all! Y'all know that song. Listen to me, boy. Hurry to Sunday school. This is the Tom Bell. When you Tom Bell has his fingers. On more of our lives than anybody would know. he His songwriting partner, Linda Creed, who made Transition of Cancer at age 36, Tom Bell by our bedside. When you hear them, you, Teddy Pendergrass, Tom Bell's and this, But I'm saying all that to say that it wasn't just the song. It wasn't just the song. It was the fact that that song has made it into movement and memory. Did you see um, Denzel Washington and Roman J. Israel no, that's the song. That's the one where he played the lawyer, the movement lawyer, who's a step out of time. His, no, I uh, see that.
0: Damn, I missed the Denzel
1: I mean, Washington movie. Hold on. As far as I'm concerned, one, Roman J. Israel Esquire. And I say that as somebody with a law degree, she's at a law school who understands that times change. Denzel Washington, as far as I'm concerned, gives a, gives a very powerful performance in Roman J. Israel Esquire. I think it was probably an attempt to get him another Academy Award. Uh, it, nothing would displace in terms of white movement in memory, social structure movement in memory. The fact they gave him the statue for playing a dirty cop was very intentional. But um, Roman J Israel is very interesting. But it, it, near the end of the movie, the 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 the, the song that kind of leads out of the film in a moment of kind of existential triumph. This is our fork in the road. In other words the idea that regardless of what happens, I'll be there. We could beef, we fell out, we done broke up, y'all betrayed a generation, but whenever you call me, I'll be there. I mean, I knew just what to say. Now I found out today that all the words have slipped away. But I know there's always a chance there's always a chance the tiny spark will remain yeah and spark turn to flame I mean this is the whole I mean the whole but that song isn't just about romance what is Tom Bell writing and producing what is Linda Creed writing and producing what are the what are their partners writing and producing and in a minute we'll talk about this a little bit they're marking a moment in time and space this is the early 70s. This is a period when the Vietnam War is continuing and is petering out. This is a period where the black power movement and the civil rights movement have pushed for gains, but then there's still very austere, austere things facing black people. Tom Bell, with a little group called the Stylistics. Trash man didn't make no trash today. Oh, why? Because they would not pay. Mate, come on, I mean. But that's the way. No, I said, that's the way the world goes round. The up and down, the carousel. Changing people's fares around. Go underground, young man. And I've seen Jeremiah Wright do this with a crowd of 500 people. He'll sing right up to that, and then he'll put his hands up, and everybody says, people make the world go round." I mean, this, I mean, this is, oh, my gosh. This is the music. It isn't just the soundtrack of the 70s. This is a soundtrack of today, the struggle. Your Amazon worker, put that music on. That's the way the world goes round—the up and down, the carousel, the stylistics, you know. And then, in a moment, you know this is this is cultural meaning making. These are relationships between Black women and men, bruh. You shot this sister in the foot? The hell, you going to jail? But now we're gonna be fighting each other. Y'all pick sides. go hell, hold on, hold on. There's a way to beef and not kill each other. Because that's jacked up and needs to be addressed and was addressed. But are we really going to just go to a total war with each other? The second song that put uh, Tom Bell on the map. Huh. What, how does that song go? Um, I thought this love of yours was true. Didn't I think it, baby? Didn't I think it, baby? <laughs> this time I'm really leaving you. Didn't I oh ten times or more? Yes, I've walked Ooh. out that door. Come on now. <laughs> Get this thing through your head. <laughs> you know, them tippities in the back. Boom, boom, boo boom. Get this thing through your head. There'll be no more. Tom Bell. Didn't I blow your mind this time? Didn't I? I got to leave you, baby. <laughs> the day after the election. The day after the election at Howard, we got all the freshmen together because they had their minds blown. And we coming into the auditoriums, it's going to be about a thousand people coming in, not just the freshmen, the whole campus. People people walking around with their minds. I told Big Pat, my man, who is, is in charge of the auditorium. I said, Pat, put on the Delphinex, 1969. Did not blow your mind this time. So, <laughs> y'all think this is a democracy and it ain't never gonna change. Hell, I, I would say between Bobby Bland, Bobby Blue Bland, I pity the fool, and the Delphinex, did not blow your mind this time. That should be black people's national anthem in the United States. Oh, say, mm mm, mm mm. <laughs> didn't I blow your mind this time didn't I <laughs> in other words you're going to push me to the brink this is Tom Bell the first hit of course with the Delphinex was the one that came just before that la 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 means I love you I mean this is music then in 2022 and look let me check the chat look at all these people look at all these people all these people know this music you could be six years old just the music in fact it's so funny i remember one time because we used to play all this music freshman seminar they would come in particularly the evening class i had i was in charge of the 6 10 to 7 o'clock tuesday night class dr williams danny williams had the 12 10 to one o'clock class we were both there for both classes but we you know we split them. we had like what at, at peak about 1500 students in there so we you know we split them but we would play the music and the kids come walking in on tuesday afternoon after the rest of their classes for a 50-minute class and we would start playing the music like thirty minutes before, and it'd be nothing but that music. And so I will never forget. These young people come and say, "This the music my grandma used to play." This the music, and they would know the they would know the lyrics. This is the music of that period: Stax records, Motown records, the sound of Philadelphia. Is the music better then than now? Absolutely not. Because cultural meaning making, everybody makes meaning in the moment they are. Is the music then better than the music now? Absolutely. Both things can be true at the same time <laughs> because this cultural meaning-making marks your time and space.
0: For you, that's your time and space. I have a question. Yes. So does that mean that today there's no substance in our culture? Yes. This is what we're talking about? Like if... if. <laughs> is that's okay. I just. I mean, wanted... imagine, imagine
1: that were were there more guns, fewer guns, probably, maybe the same, probably more now. But were there guns then? Absolutely. You go to Philadelphia in the nineteen seventies. You go to Philadelphia in the nineteen seventies when there's LaBelle and Nona Hendrix and Pat LaBelle. You go. They had some called the Black Mafia. <laughs> in fact, there's a new book called uh, American Caliph is on what happened here in Washington, D.C., down the street on 16th Street in a house that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had bought for the Hanafi Muslims. And and a hit was put on them as a kind of stray element of the Nation of Islam. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And these cats came from Philly. My man John King, another, he and his sister Dana King, the first black family that we know of on record to go through witness protection because their father got caught in there as a member Remember the Nation of Islam who was dispatched to do the hit. In fact, her uh, there's a there, John Griffin, was their father, is their father. He's doing life. He wrote a, a book on his experience called Song for My Father. And John wrote a book too, as the son called The Breeding of Contempt, about this. But the Hanafi Muslim, they, they these are casting shot Mary and Barry when Mary and Barry was on city council, some board of education, city council, then became Mary. He got shot right at the uh, at the DC uh, government office building. But at any rate, I'm saying I have to say that. But what you didn't see was. Uh You didn't see Teddy Pendergrass showing up at Pat LaBelle concert shooting her in the foot at the club. Tonight. I mean, what the hell? I mean, can you imagine Louis Armstrong, who by all accounts smoked marijuana most of the days of his adult life, showing up at the speakeasy and shooting Billie Holiday? And so something has changed. <laughs> you understand? Now, are these people today? Are young people today the same as young people then? Absolutely. Fingers, toes, breathe, eat, whatever. What has changed? The social structure has changed. And the social structure helps curate cultural meaning-making by external pressures. There's a reason why people make certain music that we hear and other music they make we don't hear. It isn't accidental. It's very important to understand that. And we all know that. I don't get too far off into that. But, But when we think about this, We have to think about culture meaning making in the context, not only of the time when it's made, but then uh, not this Monday in class, but next Monday, we'll get into movement and memory. What makes it pass the moment something is created into the permanent memory of a people, of a culture? So when you hear the spinners, I'll be around at the end of Roman J. Israel Esquire. That's because that song made it into the permanent memory. When you hear Sadie and it takes you back and you can smell the bacon or the scrapple or you can taste the orange juice or you can see yourself running out to get in the car with sister so-and-so to take you to Sunday school and your mom and them be there later on for 11 o'clock. But it's all triggered by that song. You understand that this reached and tapped something very elemental. And it's very important. Let me pause there for a moment and set this up a little bit by, because it is so-called Christmas Eve. We'll be together for class in Nubia uh, Monday night, which will be Umoja, Unity, the first night of Kwanzaa. It is the season of the equinox. Of course, the equinox began in the Northern Hemisphere, shortest day of the year, the 21st. So this is the period when the days will start getting longer. And in fact, Charles Finch, Dr. Finch and so many others over the years have written about this extensively. What we observe as ritual events like Christmas, I mean, why are they here in the calendar? They're here in part because they mark astronomical phenomena, celestial phenomena. The metaphors are the stories, the birth of, you know, Christ and all this. These are these are stories. They're metaphors for many other things. And the most brilliant folk, like I said, a Jeremiah Wright, who, I mean, I, you know, uh, Baba J has uh, lost the consistent use of his voice, but they recorded so much over the years in Trinity. I, I would, I would strongly encourage you if you've never heard Jeremiah Wright lead a random group in, in song. He did it at Howard all the time. He was a staple in January. We would come and preach, and so there are tapes of that. You can contact my friend Bernard Richardson, the dean of the chapel at Howard University, Andrew Rankin Memorial Chapel, and 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 get those recordings. But, I mean, he 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 was a well. I would expect him to be a fan of the sound of Philadelphia because he's a Philadelphian. He's born in Philadelphia, Baba J. So, you know, Tom Bell making transition. I suspect he may have known Tom Bell. Y'all check the chat because Baba J is here today. He might even say, I knew Tom Bell. I know one thing. If he did and he don't, if he's not here right now. He's going to text me later and say, Tom Bell is my friend. He's going to tell me some Tom Bell stories. But um, let's go to our man, Howard Thurman, just to set as we kind of go forward a little bit today at this end of the year conversation. This is, of course, from a book that we talked about last year. And we'll probably talk about every Christmas, uh, as the Muslims would say, inshallah. The Mood of Christmas, Howard Thurman. It's a series of meditations. And and I want to just read one, a brief one, called Blessings at Year's End. As we think about this today and next Saturday, which will be the 31st of December. He says, Thurman I remember with, this is what he says, you know, he's doing that he's saying by extension, we might all want to consider doing near the end of a calendar year. I remember with gratitude, the fruits of the labors of others, which I have shared as a part of the normal experience of daily living. I remember the beautiful things that I've seen, heard and felt, some as a result of definite seeking on my part and the many that came unheralded unto my path warming my heart and rejoicing my spirit. I remember the moments of distress that proved to be groundless and those that taught me profoundly about the evilness of evil and the goodness of good. I remember the new people I have met from whom I have caught glimpses of the meaning of my own life and the true character of human dignity. I remember the dreams that haunted me during the year, keeping me ever mindful of goals and hopes which I did not realize, but from which I drew inspiration to sustain my life and keep steady my purposes. And finally, I remember the awareness of the Spirit of God that sought me out in my aloneness and gave to me a sense of assurance that undercut my despair and confirmed my life with new courage and abiding hope. Just a little prayer from the ancestor, Howard Thurman, The Mood of Christmas. So there were a couple of transitions that at least I became aware of one happened since we were all together last Saturday and another one a little bit before that, but they're both about the context of cultural meaning making Tom Bell, as I said, Tom Bell, a Philadelphian, really, although born in Jamaica, as I said, part of the mighty three, which was the name of their company. He was actually technically the president of the company, Uh, Mike, mike is a fan of this magazine i have most of the copies but the more recent ones have been kind of difficult to get but he scored the one with tom bell mike will go all over, he look all over the world for this i think he had to send it to london this is an early one it's called the philly issue i don't know if any of you all are fans of the, of the uh magazine wax poetics very important a little magazine on music art culture this is the philly of course his gambling huff but who you don't see is tom bell tom bell And my friend Diana Williams, uh, who is a giant in the field of music, a Philadelphian, you know, she's quoted as saying this in uh, today's Philadelphia Inquirer about Tom Bell. He never wanted to be famous. In fact, he parceled out all his gold records and awards to his children and grandchildren over the years. And and, and the Inquirer obituary says, in part to make way for, get this, 1,500 cookbooks. Because Tom Bell took up cooking. <laughs> and with the same passion and zeal, he did music. Very important that Tom Bell, who started as the touring pianist and um, musical director for Chubby Checker. Because, you know, Chubby Checker came out of Philadelphia. and y'all know Philadelphia? You know, where Market Street, Forty-six and Market, where you get on the train. I used to walk over there and get on a train to come down, to get on the uh, train to 30th Street, come down here to, to D.C. when I was still living in Philly, working at Howard often, many times. Right there at the corner, that's that little building that's still there where they used to film American bands Bandstand. Tom Bell uh, befriended Chubby Checker. Chubby Checker used to be in and out of the building that became the, uh, the headquarters of the Mighty Three and then Philadelphia International Records and quizzing quizzing Tom Bell about the business side of music. Royalties, copyright, intellectual property, what we call intellectual property now. and He was so intrigued by tom bell including his musicianship and music musical skills he said well you know i want you to go on a roll with me and tom bell was the pianist and musical director for chubby Checker. in fact because he helped him understand every ooh ah every grunt in the twist in all your songs we need to get that down on paper because if you change it a little bit they'll take it from you so i mean just i mean the guy had so many talents bill but at any rate uh, in this, in this particular, if you go to the Wax Poetics website, you can read long a long interview with Tom Bell. Uh, one thing about Wax Poetics, they have the physical copies, and like I say, me and Mike be stalking the copies. Mike got the one with the with the physical uh, interview, but this is one of the early ones. Uh, this is actually from. Let me look at the date here as I continue. This number thirty three was from two thousand eight, so not that much. It goes back, obviously to the late 90s, but this is what in this interview with Gamble and Huff um, conducted by the Wax Poetics team, Ronnie Reese did it, this is them again the main ingredient, <laughs> but you don't see Tom Bell, right, well he asked him about Tom Bell, he says, uh, let's start with some of your collaborators, I'll start with Tom Bell Huff answers one word talent Kenny Gamble says, Tommy Bell His sister Barbara was in my class at West Philly High School. All these cats is public school students. Okay, let's pause there. A certain generation remembers, I don't care where you went to school, if you are African descent in the United States, a lot of the music came out of relationships that were formed in school, sometimes in the musical places they were going in school. It wasn't just doo wop although it was that it wasn't just street corners, it wasn't just it wasn't that When neighborhood bands, it wasn't just that. I mean, uh, what's my man? Uh it talks about how John Coltrane, Benny Golson talking about how he met John Coltrane, it's another Philadelphia story. He's a teenager, comes over my house because somebody said, Man, this is a cat that plays this horn, man. He sounds just like you know, uh, Johnny Hodges. Really, what do you bring in my house? 16 years old, these guys are in school together, high school together. So, anyway, Tommy Bell, his sister Barbara, was in my class at West Philly High School. She used to tell me about her brother because I was always singing. Uh, by the way, Tom, uh, Tommy Bell, Thomas Randolph Bell, had uh, nine brothers, he was one of nine brothers and sisters. Uh, I used to walk her home and everything. That's what Kenny Gamble saying about Tom Bell's sister. And when we got to the house, they had a piano in there. Remember I told you, he started early. And we started writing some songs. I guess I was about 16. His family had a fish market, so Tommy couldn't write songs all the time because he had to work in that fish market cutting fish. But he trained himself. He trained himself and learned how to arrange, and he studied. Now, I grew up in Nashville. So it wasn't nothing for me to hear all the country music people. So Showtime got a series now, George and Tammy. I don't have to watch George and Tammy to remember when this song came out. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. (laughs) Giving all your love to just one man. He'll have the good times. You have some bad times, <laughs> doing things that she won't understand. Then you hear, them little uh, string instruments. <laughs> but if you love him, you forgive him. <laughs> Y'all know that song, right? This is one of them songs that leaked through country music and hit black people. with Stand by your man. <laughs> And tell the world you will love him. Tell me why, that, right? Well, they got actors playing that, right? I think, uh, Christine and uh, what's it, what it was in Boardwalk Empire, uh, from Kentucky.
0: I, I just call him Big Head, big he head, right,
1: with the eyes, right? <laughs> I don't look like George Jones. I'm like, yeah, I grew up watching George Jones. You kind of do look like George Jones, them eyes. Uh, Michael, Michael, it'll come to me anyway. If you, you you look across, the uh, Michael Shannon. Michael, Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon, right? Michael Shannon, okay. So I found myself watching one of the episodes because I'm, I'm gonna see what they because I grew up in Nashville. Fanfare, them hellbillies descend. Now, remember, there was still Charlie Pride around. I mean, this whole new group now, black people saying, We discovered country music. You didn't discover country music. In fact, uh, when I was at the uh, Ken thing last week, I was talking to the young brother who is the musical director, um, at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Good brother, we were talking and uh he he came to Namak here at the smithsonian from nashville where he worked at the national museum of african-american music which is in nashville and i told him last time i was home you know this time last year i was like i went by there but it was closed and i wasn't able to stay long ago i haven't been yet and so we start he said well i hope you know we're doing and by the way he may be in here right now because he's new in and he's is in here all the time he says you know so i'm like uh he said I hope that we're doing justice here you know in terms of me I said y'all doing justice bro we were talking he said well you know I was a struggle how do you tell the whole story I said he said I was in Nashville and you know I was like how do you get I said well, as long as you had D4 Bailey he said yeah I had D4 Bailey come on man Then he started talking about interviewing members of D4 Bailey's uh family I said see this young brother right here you are right with me because I mean D4 so in other words the new fascination with country music black people have No, we was at the beginning. In fact, we helped frame the beginning. Go get D four Bailey. We talked about D four Bailey. But anyway, let me back to the point I was raising. When I'm watching this little thing on Showtime on George Jones and Tammy Wynette, I'm watching these actors, Shannon and Chastain, singing, and they made the decision to have them sing, and then use Auto Tune. And so I see the critics saying, well, you know, Chastain doesn't sound like Tammy Wynette. She's too nasally. I'm like, of course she don't. But, you know, and then you see uh, Michael Shannon playing at picking the guitar. He opened his mouth, and I hear him, you know, come on in. Mm-mm-mm. Would you like to take the grand tour? I'm like, this is after they break up, right? The whole... Half them songs they wrote was basically out of beef. So don't think, you know, (laughs) know stand by your man, the grand tour, you know, golden ring when they reconcile, all this stuff, right? And so I'm watching, I'm thinking, is that auto-tune? So I had to go back and listen to George Jones. I'm like, yeah, that's auto-tune. That's not George Jones. Because George Jones, you know, man, you talk about, look, black people, let's just pause here for a moment and remember that anytime anybody in this social structure tries to pathologize Black entertainers, and try to say that we out here buck wild. I got two words for you, George Jones. I got two more words for you, Waylon Jennings. I got two more words for you, Willie Nelson. I got two, and all you got to do is give them two words. Y'all black people should have, hold on. I, I got one thing to say. What country music? <laughs> Go back. These is the most cocaine snorting, gun shooting, blow up the house, drive the lawnmower to the liquor store and come back. Yeah, yeah, that happened in George Jones. Like, I mean, come on, because they took all the car keys to George Jones, got on his lawnmower and drove to there. I know where that place is in Nashville. My point is, don't let nobody talk about black people like we some kind of outliers. In fact, we learned it from you. When nobody doing that crazy stuff to you. I came with them boats. All right. Now, but the point I'm raising with all that, coming back to this interview that Leon Huff and Kenny Gamble gave with Wax Poetics. He says, Gamble says, he trained himself and learned how to arrange and he studied. Today, you can just open your mouth, they auto-tune it, and you got a hit. You couldn't do that when these cats came along. You had to be able to play an instrument. You had to be you had to know music. And there are people who play instruments and know music now. You know, I we were riding around the other day, and somebody what's that song? Uh somebody put it in the chat. Uh uh, what's that boy that got drink champs to podcast what's his name nori there was a song about 15 years ago 10 or 15 years ago your girl is looking at me uh she's a haggler but you know I man, something you know what you want to do it's pharrell pharrell's a protege of teddy riley teddy riley play instruments so this isn't a condemnation of any generation, but it is a recognition that as the social structures change, you're going to have different people making music based on the context they're in, and it's going to mark their moment in time as we come through time and space. But it's very important to understand that, yeah, Noriega, somebody will tell me what the uh, backstabbers for sure. Come on now. Nothing. Oh. That, that song is called Nothing. Nothing. Thank you. Nothing. I couldn't remember it because, again, I'm aware of it, but I was older then. You know, I was, I was I was a teacher then, but you know, for me, like for us, the late seventies, early eighties, that was high school, and then the early to mid eighties was college. So that's Prince. You understand? Know that's the period of Prince. That is Michael, Michael Jackson. No question. That that is the second era, Michael Jackson. And in fact, Michael Jackson recorded some songs with Tom Bell, based on Michael Jackson's appreciation for and really reverence for Tom Bell. With the Jacksons, and reason that Tom Bell didn't sign with Philadelphia International exclusively, because he said, I like to work with whoever I want to work with, which is why, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Now, he says, uh, Kenny Gamble says, he was a big asset to us with his arrangements and stuff like that. He and Linda Creed had their own career. Linda Creed, I mentioned, his, his collaborator. We put them together. Then Leon Huff says, Linda Creed, she'd say, come on, Leon, let's write some stuff. And I'd say, I got to go in here with Gamble. I can't do any writing today. Linda was just floating around, but eventually Gamble got it to Tommy, and that worked. Kenny Gamble finally says, me and Huff had signed Linda to a songwriter contract, so she was working with us. Tommy was like an independent when he first started working with us, but he needed somebody to write with. He was a good arranger and everything, but he needed, he needed somebody who could write lyrics, and Linda was the perfect person. Again, go to the Wax Poetics website, and you can read through a lot of this stuff, and, and you want to hear this stuff from the people who did it. So I'll get back to Tom Bell in a minute. I want to mention, however, that Tom Bell is someone who marked time and space in collaboration with all those other folk, many of whom are ancestors, many of whom are still around. And we think about in moments like this, when somebody like this makes tradition, uh, transition rather, we think about, I was thinking tradition in my mind, when somebody makes transition, we think about that genealogy of cultural meaning making. We think about iconic figures we think about this notion of how these things endure over time and space. And there was somebody else who made transition. whose obituary was in yesterday's New York Times. And I don't know how many of us, and probably how many of these have we done? How many of these have we done that we just, you know, in fact, we have such an archive. In fact, uh, there uh, she wrote her memoir actually about two years ago. And I'm digging around here. and I hope I didn't put it in storage. Uh, it's called Little Lady with a Big Drum. I don't know, I'm sure there are people in here right now with the thousand plus who are in here now who know this name. This is Elaine Jones. Elaine Jones, she was 94 years old. Let me read this. She made transition. Like Tom Bell, a musician. Like Tom Bell, an instrumentalist. Unlike Tom Bell, she was the absolute top of her class in her particular choice of instrument and unlike tom bell who said when they said why are you putting oboes and french horns because remember in didn't i blow your mind this time the first sound you hear is that oboe he good for them bells too and then you hear them strings come in now didn't i do it baby beautiful but the first thing you hear is that french one say so ask tom bell why are you putting all these horns and oboes Black people don't listen to that. He said, I don't just make music for black people. I make music for people. This sister right here, Elaine Jones, let's learn about it together, shall we? Elaine Jones, a timpanist, timpanese, a timpanist who was said to be the first black principal player in a major American orchestra when she joined the San Francisco Symphony in 1972 and who mounted a legal battle over racial and sexual discrimination when she was denied tenure two years later died on saturday last saturday at her home in walnut creek california she was 94 how many of us said this is the first time we've heard that name ashay Margot. that's right oh yeah prince did yeah he did he that's right prince did a cover of bet you by golly wow no question on a look at y'all see this is what i'm loving wow as we say every every week it's the conversation that's being held in the chat and the comments sections that really brings this to life. All we're doing is, as you say, Prof, is giving out breadcrumbs. All right, here we go. The charismatic, Juilliard-trained Miss Jones was not only a rare woman among the orchestral percussionists of her time, she also helped lead a generation of Black musicians in confronting the pervasive and enduring, meaning to this day, to quote Deontay wilder racism of the classical music industry her appointment in san francisco under that ensemble's modish music director seji ozawa quote projected a forward-looking vision of classical music end quote the scholar grace wang has written i would encourage you all to, to get her book little lady with a big drum admired for her lyricism and finesse miss jones was an instant hit in san francisco Her playing is so outlandish in quality, one gets the titters just thinking of it, the critic Hewell Turkett wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle of her debut. Arthur Bloomfield, the San Francisco Examiner, wrote that her work in a seemingly straightforward passage of Norma, the, the opera Norma, at the San Francisco Opera, was so rounded and suave, I just about fell out of my seat. How does lady drop out of history? This black woman. Now, I know she didn't for a lot of people, but for a lot of people, she has. Once described in a headline as, quote, the groovy tympanist," here at a social structure, end quote, Miss Jones had seen the San Francisco auditions as a last chance to win a permanent post, a success that had been denied her during the two decades she spent toiling to challenge the color line as a freelancer in New York City. Here's a quote from her, quote, I had to prove that music could be played by anyone who loves it, she said in 1973. It has been a terrible burden because I always felt I had to do better, that I wouldn't be allowed the lapses other musicians have. It's true even now. Orchestral musicians typically serve probationary periods before being granted tenure. Approval seems a formality in Ms. Jones' case, but a seven-man man, committee of the San Francisco players voted against her and a bassoonist, Rahogi uh, Nakagawa, in May 1974. Despite Mrs. Ozawa's advice to the contrary, two of these people rated her competence at one out of one hundred. Pure racism. As audience members launched pickets and petitions, many white critics portrayed the incident primarily as a challenge to Mrs. Ms., Mr. Ozawa's authority to the conductor. Though the conductor denied any link, he soon quit. Miss Jones saw things differently. Here's the governance, she says. "Quote: I've had good vibes everywhere. Now I wonder what the hell is wrong, and what did I do that is so wrong?" She said that June, announcing her intention to sue the orchestra and the music- musicians union, was it because I was a woman or a black? or both. Ms. Jones played on for for a season while her lawsuit made its way through the courts, but when a judge ordered a second supervised vote in August 1975, a new committee of players turned her down again, citing concerns about her intonation. Although she performed tenured in the pit of the San Francisco Orchestra until 1998, 23 more years, her effective firing at the symphony stayed with her. It has been quite difficult, she said in a television interview in 1977, not only playing, but trying to live through all this and living with myself too, which is kind of hard because you begin to question, well, am I really a good performer? Am I a worthy person? Cultural meaning making. But then she went on, quote, I listen to other people and I have more confidence in myself. What did Howard Thurman say in that meditation? I'll read a little bit more. Elaine Viola Jones was born on January 30th, 1928 in Harlem, the only child of immigrants from Barbados. Her father, Cecil, was a porter and then a subway conductor. Her mother, Ometa, dreamed of becoming a professional pianist, but had to enter domestic service. They had a piano in their apartment, and Elaine used it to play along with the big band jazz she heard on the radio. She was six when her mother introduced her to classical music. At first, she she says, I thought it was strange to have music that people didn't dance to because we all love dance to swing music. Ms. Jones wrote in her autobiography, Little Lady with a Big Drum. However, I didn't reject this different kind of music and practice it every day, growing to enjoy its irregularities. Tom Bell practicing, Elaine Jones practicing. She qualified for the High School of Music and Art. Y'all know that's LaGuardia High School now. And she hoped to add the violin to her studies on the piano. She was given drumsticks instead. Watch this quote. We all know that Negroes have rhythm, she recalled a teacher saying. She wanted to play the violin. The cat gave her the drumsticks and she became the best in the game at the timpani. Ms. Jones was sufficiently talented to win a scholarship to Juilliard School in 1945. Genealogy, watch this, under the sponsorship of Duke Ellington. Her tutor was Saul Goodman, the story timpanist of the New York Philharmonic, and after she graduated in 1949, he persuaded New York City Opera to hire her as its timpanist, but the city opera season was limited, and she had to scrounge for jobs for much of the year. On tour with the company, she was forced to sleep in separate hotels from other musicians, stopped at stage doors as white colleagues walked through, and told to perform Hidden from View. Politically, a leftist okay, pause here, pause here. Cultural meaning may how many, Professor Hunter, as I anticipate some of the things you have planned for 2023, and wait in anticipation, everybody just gonna have to wait, like me, to see what you're gonna drop next. How many of our artists have said it isn't enough to express? I must then get, be involved in changing the world, not only through my art and my craft, but through my activity. He goes on to write, uh, David Allen, writing the New York Times, says, politically a leftist, Ms. Jones became an insistent activist. When the critic Howard Taubman wrote in the New York Times in 1956 that, quote, if there are capable Negro musicians, they would deserve major ensemble jobs. She visited him to demonstrate that such musicians did in fact exist. She worked in an Urban League report about racism in the music world. Within weeks of its publication in 1958, she found herself filling in at the New York Philharmonic. Although the Philharmonic records are of substitute players are sparse, archival documents name her as the first black musician to perform as part of the orchestra. Elaine Jones. Why ain't this headlining everywhere? Why ain't this on the front page? Why are we all hearing this? Because the social structure, don't give a name. Elaine Jones or uh, Megan Pete you're a black woman, you got a hard way to go in the world. Ms. Jones left City Opera in 1960 at the request of her husband, the doctor and civil rights activist, George Kaufman, who asked that he spent that she spend more evenings with him and their three children. But Leonard Stokowski, long a fan, quickly tapped her for his American or- Symphony Orchestra for which she performed in 1972 she was one of the driving forces behind the founding of the Integrated Symphony of the New World in 1965. And she joined other black musicians to urge that the initial rounds of auditions be held blind with musicians behind a screen to reduce bias. Yeah, do that. Of course, if she was so good, they thought that's her, we ain't gonna win her. The San Francisco Symphony was an early adopter of that approach. I wouldn't have gotten the job if the screen wasn't in place, she later told Dr. Wang i'm the recipient of a thing that i worked on anyway i'll read the last quote as a single mother ms jones often had to take her children to rehearsals come on now come on now maybe next week i'm gonna mention this uh this sister right here but i want to show y'all anyway this is a sister who just made transition dorothy Pittman. i talked about her on monday night dorothy Pittman hughes with her fists raised, this is her and Gloria Steinem, you know, sisterhood, right? Black women, white women, feminists, uh, this kind of thing. This sister right here, nah, feminists, don't do that. In fact, this is a great book, Laura Lovett, who collaborated with Miss uh, with Miss Pittman Hughes, who talked with her, talked with the family, went through the archive. But there's some things I want to say about that. I'll save it to next week. But I want to encourage you not just to get what other people wrote about her, even with her help, but to say what she wrote about herself. Wake up and smell the dollars. This is Dorothy Pittman Hughes. Whose inner city is this anyway? She started a bookstore, and office supply store in Harlem. And she talks about being black, being a woman, and stopping gentrifiers, and including Bill Clinton in the Harlem Empowerment Zone. She told her own story. But I'm saying all that to say that, uh, you know, the idea of taking your children to work, she started a daycare, Dorothy Pittman Hughes did, in Harlem. That's where Gloria Steinem met her. And, you know, she said, oh, wow, we toured together. We spoke together. But often she would say things different to me. You think? This sister right here, one of the baddest performers in her genre, in music, in the world. She took her children to work with her. Can you imagine being her children? Can you imagine that? All these old stiff. And you sitting there in the corner looking like they not better than mom. No, they not better than mom. Black women. This is A different conversation. This is a conversation ought to be wells had to have in white women. Yeah, I understand we are all women, but I'm I'm a Negro, I'm a race woman. Don't ever get that mistaken with some kind of notion of gender solidarity. White supremacy ain't been knocked out. Finally, she says, she hopes she said that she offered her children an example. Last quote: All youngsters need to imagine, need an image to project to. Negro youngsters, even more than white, she said. When they can see Negroes playing in the orchestra, they may feel that they can get there someday, too. Now, there are, you know, are a lot of black people playing white classical music. I tried my hand at the cello because they had music programs in Nashville, and I love playing the cello, but I love playing the trumpet more and then the baritone horn. So, and I, you know, I, when you, you understand how that works, I mean, but even being exposed to that creates a different kind of thing. But I wanted to mention her because, you know, we we will, we will might hear something about Tom Bell in passing, but we probably won't hear much about Elaine Jones. And we think about this in the context that they were both marking time and space and culture, mini making albeit with different kinds of uh, trajectories. I'm going to kind of begin to wind this uh, to a close today and we can pick up next week as we kind of close out. But I want to stop with, uh, let me see. I pulled a bunch of books from the end of the just for kind of end of the year some of the better books that I found for this year that were excellent. Let me let me let me just show you a couple, and I'll keep going uh, next week. But these are more recently published. Um, for those who are looking for, you know, between now and when you got to go back to work full time, if you have the luxury of being able to pause for a minute, as I said, the last couple of weeks, Mary Emma Graham's book on Margaret Walker is excellent. The House Where My Soul Lives. This is the book that uh, just came out last month or so. Um, I'm working my way through this one. Uh, it got a lot of information, and in. this brother still walks to earth, although he's retired as a performer. Uh, this is Aiden Levy's book, Saxophone Colossus The Life of and Music of Sonny Rollins, the great Sonny Rollins. I mean, this book is like
0: how many pages? <laughs> this one is
1: almost 800 pages. <laughs> yeah, almost 800 pages. I mean, but it's fast reading, you know, they don't write books now like they used to. So even the books that consider themselves big books, I'm like, this book right here, easy as hell. Now, you won't get a book. Anyway, that's a whole nother conversation, right? We, You know that better than that. It's very different. But, I mean, Sonny Rollins, man. Woo, Sonny Rollins, baby. Mm. Anyway, I, we might have to talk a little bit about Sonny Rollins. And I'll show you one more just for now. Uh, this is Marilyn Nance. This is a sister who, uh, January, for about a month in 1976, mid-January to mid-February, She was one of the over 15,000 people, almost all of African descent, who descended upon Nigeria for the second World Black Festival of Arts and Culture. It's known as Festac, 77. Many people know Festac. She was a photographer. She took more than 1,500 pictures of Festac. we'll talk more about this next week. This book just came out in the last couple of weeks called Last Day in Lagos by Marilyn Nance. It is a record and i mean here's like i mean pictures like this man imagine that you're from all over the african world you're in nigeria to celebrate black culture from all over the world they're there from brazil they're there from the united states here goes one of the some folks who come from other parts of african continent to i mean and then of course it's just a lot of uh a lot of her journal entries a lot of reporting i mean i mean the photographs are really remarkable and of course Tax 77 and we could talk about, I mean, they're from the Caribbean, they're there from the United States. The United States delegation. Look, here's Suriname coming for Festac Center. The whole African world, talk about cultural meaning making It's just so very important. I mean, but at any rate, there's just three that came out this week. Uh, this week, this this year, in the last month or so that I'll mention. So let me let me end for today with because we ain't finished. This is a great book. Cost me a pretty penny. This is one that, um, again, as I told you, my my uh, graduate assistant, my teaching assistant, Ms. Carter, who's finishing her PhD, she done scoured the, the archives for all kind of stuff. Um, and this is a book that she recommended. She got a copy of and, of course, it's called The Philly Sound. It's an excellent book. Philadelphia soul music and its R&B roots from gospel and bandstand to the sound of Philadelphia. I mean... This book which is about almost 700 pages is an and all and it's heavy it's heavy it's like a heavy paper all the images are in color and it was published in the UK because you know white people outside the United States got a lot more respect for black culture in the United States than white people here and uh don't at me but let me just read a little bit here about Tom Bell about to enter the, the spinner's lives. Because we talked a little bit about the spinners, but, you know, when you see Tom Bell, you think about the sound of Philadelphia. But remember, Tom Bell's an independent producer. He can work with anybody. About to enter their lives was Tom Bell. Bell had always had an ear for the spinners, reaching as far back as the early 60s when they had played piano at the Uptown Theater. Y'all know the Uptown Theater if you know Philly, Broad Street, North Broad Street. Uh, Georgie Woods, the man with the goods, the DJ. Some of y'all know that. James Spadey's book on Georgie Woods, I'm Only a Man probably out of print now spady made transition all those books need to be brought back into print anyway for a show that they appeared on and when he was invited by harry allen atlantic the label atlantic's president to produce an act of his choosing from the label's lengthy list of r&b singers he chose the spinners tom bell did atlantic were at first was at first reluctant to hand the group to bell Although they were a real respected act, it was generally perceived that they were underachievers and their recent material hadn't convinced the Atlantic upper echelons that anything changed in that respect. Now imagine that. The spinners, are they good? But I don't, they're not an upper echelon group. But Tom Bell said, I like that group. I like this. Set. Let me work with them. They say, no, we don't. You, you sure? And then they're not gonna. Tom so said, let me work. Can I work with them? You said anybody, right? Said, okay. We continue. He says, uh, Bell, however, was adamant and held out for the group. Once Atlantic acquiesced and Bell was given the go-ahead, he then encountered another as-yet-unseen problem. I had to check this with with Angie and Mike and some of y'all, if y'all know this story. This writer writes, the spinners weren't exactly overjoyed at the thought of another Black producer. Still bruised from their experiences at Motown, the group needed convincing that Bell was the right man to propel them into the Hot 100." Tom Bell achieved this in the old fashioned way. He made a bet. He offered up the wager that if he delivered a number one hit, they would buy him a Cadillac. Bell didn't even possess a driver's license. <laughs> and if he failed the quest, he would give each of them $10,000. You're talking about man having confidence in his skills? <laughs> number one, y'all give me a cat. You don't even drive. Just give me. But if but if I don't do it, I'm going to get each of y'all 10 stacks. Bro, you ain't got no money. I, I promise you. Okay. The ploy worked, and Bell and the group went into Sigma Sound Studios, as Joe Teresa again, and set off on a musical journey that would see them produce an incredible one of strength, of singles, albums, chart positions that fully justified their determination to leave their Motown and Detroit experiences behind them. Because some of y'all know Spinner's fans, they were known as the Detroit Spinner's. They came out of Detroit. Watch this. Bell's skillful understanding of the group's vocal dynamics and his assistance that Bobby Smith carry the majority of the lead vocals proved to be the catalyst that kick-started their career and the lush, laid-back arrangements that Bell favored had started to become something of a signature sound from him and placed the spinners amongst the most successful echelons of the decade's soul stars. In 1974, the same year that they gave given hell to Elaine Jones in San Francisco, 1974, the group with Bell at the production helm once again topped the R&B charts. Only this time, they did it twice. The Spinner's Mighty Love, their second album for Atlantic and new and improved Atlantic, their third, both became certified gold, which means the first three albums had all hit the top spot and delivered three consecutive smash hits. It's an interesting observation that Tom Bell had taken to recording two albums worth of material rather than just one at this stage. It goes on, it goes on. It says the first 45 for the group was a song written by Yvette Davis and featuring Felipe Wynn. Y'all Spinner's fans, y'all know Felipe may transition unfortunately in in part not too long after this but Felipe went on lead but it was the flip a mid-paced dancer featuring Bobby Smith written by Bell and Phil Hurt that caught the imaginations of the radio DJs and thus garnered the requisite airplay that enabled it to break into the national arena in the autumn the spinners I'll be around I'll be around what was on the B side how could I let you get away? Can you imagine Tom Bell? Why hasn't everything paused? Y'all did be playing this music. It's like when Bill Withers, right? Top it. And then uh, their second 45 release. Could it be I'm falling in love with you, baby? Could it be I'm falling in love? Ooh. That's the sound. The third effort drawn from the group's first Philadelphia LP that Joe Jefferson pinned Spinners. One of a kind, love of fairies. <laughs> come on now. I never thought about the day would come she would leave, when she would leave without goodbye. Yes, sir. Come on. Mm-mm-mm. See? When I hear music today, I'm always thinking, like we all are, what experience are you writing from? Because, see, some of these things are timeless. I never thought the day would come when she would leave without goodbye. Said, I'm leaving you. Though my love is true, I can't stay with you. Man said, to this very day, I can never say a discouraging word. Because I love you. In other words, you know you're wrong when well, you know you're right, but you got to make a little sacrifice. You make love. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I mean, Tom, can you imagine these creative sessions, Professor? Honey? He said, "Give me the spinners. Give me the spin." I like this man's voice. I like. This. Let me. Let me have the spin. They ain't never give. will you just give me the spinners. Hey, look. If I don't get y'all number one hit, I'm gonna give y'all ten thousand This man. We're not done, but I'm. I'm almost done. Then watch this. Watch this. He releases another one, with the spinners riding high, Bell assigned Joe Jefferson, Bruce Halls, and Charlie Simmons the task of writing songs for the group. And by December of that year, the group had recorded a whole album of material mainly based around the material forced, first furnished by that trio. Jefferson, Halls, and Tom Bell, just in time to hit record store shelves for Christmas. The first 45, called from the LP, Mighty love will sometimes make you weep and moan. A mighty love, you sit all day by the telephone. But you're all alone, you need a mighty love. That's the way this song opens. Once there was a boy and girl. Boy said, I love you so. Come on, how many times now? Girl said, I'll never leave you. Don't give you a break. They grew older and left each other. Because that's the way love goes. Baby, that's the way love goes. That chord, that chord changed. Oh, and soon there's a time. Come on, man, I wish I could have been in, in these rooms. All right, Mighty Love comes after that. Then watch this. The success. Then they come a little later. What he do, do? He put that cat mouth lady with the spinners. <laughs> the cat I mouth. never knew love before. Come on now. Then came you. Then came you. D. I. Warwick and the spinners. This is Tom Bell. This is Tom Bell. Oh, then he goes with this with Sadie. Uh oh. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. The fourth of the Tom Bell produced albums. Picking a litter. He's responsible with those other two songwriters, Jefferson Halls. Uh Uh-oh. Watch this. Y'all remember this one? 12.45. Headed on the subway home. Come on now. I took my time. Cause I felt so all alone, Mm -mm -mm -mm. not far away. I heard a funny sound, took a look around, and I could see her
0: face.
1: Smiling as she came, calling out my name now, hiding the sister, nowhere to go. Come on, ho ho, games people, play! Games people play. Why I gotta be deadly all the time? Shooting people in the foot, slapping people at the club. Thumb. No, no. Games people play. Come on now. Oh my goodness. And I'm gonna end with this one. I'll go. I'm not gonna read them all. Watch this. Here we go. Uh, let me see. If the team were disappointed with their chart showing, then that disappointment was about to be overtaken by jubilation, as the very next outing provided Felipe Win with a majestic effort that would prove to be his last with the group and would return the group to the very peak of Billboard charts. The Tom Bell, Linda Creed penned, hand me down my walking cane, hand me down my hat. That's when we was in high school. Hurry now, it won't be late, because we ain't got time to chat. You and me, we're going out to catch the latest sound. Guaranteed to blow your mind so high it won't come down. Creed and Bell. Hey, y'all, prepare yourself for the rubber band. you your bound. Now watch this. How many, Professor Hunter, people sitting up in Guardians of the Galaxy, know anything, <laughs> if you ain't black, about that? You got a half alien in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all the soundtracks of the Stam Guardians of the Galaxy is this music, so I'll resist the urge to go into working my way. Uh, back to you when he worked, oh, with me. Uh, enjoy <laughs> yourself. I mean, he did enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself with me. He says, Uh, because, because while that was we're Jackson's, Jackson. right? Yes, the Jackson's, Tom Bell, enjoy yourself. That's Tom Bell, Michael Jackson. I want to work with Tom Bell. He says uh, while working on the film The Wiz, Michael Jackson would develop a relationship with one of its chief musical producers, a certain Quincy Jones, and the rest, they say, is history. He says while the Spinners, Tom Bell, Linda Creed, and Jefferson Hayes Simmons were enjoying their success, another writing team would shortly see their labors come fruition. I'm not even gonna go through all these, cause he also worked. And thank you all for the correction. I was calling her Philly, but the reason I always conflate Phyllis Hyman with Philly instead of where she was from, which is Pittsburgh, Tom Bell worked with Phyllis Hyman. Among others. So
0: Hold that book up again, please, sir.
1: <laughs> Man. oh no, it's- This is called the Philly Sound. Them them British be doing books like this. These huge
0: books with because That's all they do is study and then come out with artists and then the K-pop people and that's all they do is study our stuff. We don't study our stuff the way they study our stuff and that's why they're able to top charts and bring out somebody call him the King of Pops, Harry Styles and all of these other people and whatever his name is and and Adele who I love but that's all they do is study us. That's right. Study us.
1: Come on, Come on back prof. We done because that is a perfect place us to close, we must remember because you're right, everybody know how good we are. We know too, but we don't we take stuff for granted,
0: and we don't play them instruments and we don't study, uh-huh. study, study. Man, I'm I'm watching, you know, while you were doing this 1974, the spinners went to Zaire, and I'm thinking at some point we got to come back to Zaire because there was the boxing match in Zaire. Like, what was Zaire up to oh, in no,
1: the 70s? This was in fact, I've showed that book. There's been a couple. Remember that was
0: remember. Ali fighting Foreman. Yes, was, uh, But sure. was a place that people could go. Like we don't even have that. Yeah. Afrochella is brought about the.
1: Nah, anyway. Afrochella yes. ain't got nothing to do with. In fact, I mean, I hate to hate. To, I don't want to rain on Afrochella, but let's be clear. That period of seventies, Festac '77, Soul to Soul, which was in Ghana. That's Roberta Flack. That's wow. Isaac Hayes. That's all. The, so they did a documentary called Soul to Soul. These are and and. In Zaire, you got a whole CIA asset running the country named Mobutu Seko. Mobutu was put in place by the Belgians and by the United States of America after they assassinated Patrice Lumumba. But his thing was, I'm authentically black. So he changed the name from Congo to Zaire. As John Clark said, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. The naive Americans, led by a greedy cat named Don King, gonna make all the money in the world. Remember, Ali... Who have been banned from boxing has come back recently, but he is black to the bone. So his thing is, we're going to Africa. And everybody goes up. George Foreman, who won the Olympic medal in 68, waved the American flag around the wing, even it ring. He's black, but black people are like, no, Ali. And then Ali gets to Africa and gins up all the all the, the, the Congolese. Ali Boubaye. Ali kill him. What you represent the black world. He gets there, Foreman hurts his hand. Because King re- realized he's going to make this money. says, let's have a huge concert. We're going to call it The Black Woodstock. So it isn't just The Spinners. It's Bill Withers. Oh. It's B.B. Yeah. It's, uh, it's King. It's Celia Cruz. It's Fania and the All-Stars. They come from the Caribbean. They, and they made a documentary. It's called When We Were Kings. When you see the, the, the concert film, the concert film lay fallow for years. Now, people think that, that thing that Questlove did was great, you got to see When We Were Kings. Because what you see is, these are Congolese. They speak Lingala. They speak Mboche. They speak French. When you see Celia Cruz come out on that stage in Spanish, Guantanamera, and they all cheer, B.B. King comes out there and plays the straight blues. These Africans don't speak a word of English, but the thing connects. And then the godfather of soul james brown (laughs) comes out and does the big payback i mean the whole thing is captured on film so yeah the spinners were right in the middle of that i mean this is the thing we have to. i'm not saying we don't do it now but those three concerts ghana nigeria Tech, which was a whole festival for a month and the zaire festival which of course we know foreman's hand heel thank goodness and ali put him down And to the day he made transition, and to this day among the Continental Africans who were there and those who tell the story, they said Ali was not supposed to win that fight, but Ali said, these sisters here, these spirit workers who came here and prayed, they said I was going to win the fight. And when he knocked them out, within 30 seconds of the knockout, the whole heavens open and a monso- monsoon
0: level rain flooded. <laughs> this is all true. So, anyway, <laughs> you're giving me chills because this is this is the work that we are here to do. Uh, we're going to work through, of course, y'all who celebrate uh, Christmas. Kwanzaa, the first day is on Monday, which ironically is Omoja. Which is unity, unity. which is unity, which is for us to remember all of the things and come together to do all of the things because we have the power to do that. Um, I'm so grateful you were talking about. Can you imagine being in a room? Yes, I can because I'm in the room with you every Uh Saturday, 146 in a row, and it's magic. It's magic. Uh, Somebody called you the human uh, jukebox. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. no.
1: Please forgive me because you know I'm i muddling my way through them songs, but Tom Bell's an ancestor. Let's go play some spinners today. Yes. And some stylistics yes. today.
0: Yes. Oh. <laughs> and clean our clean baseboards, you know, as we go like why you yes. put the music on clean the house. Let's go. Let's as my man J-
1: Jules Harrell, uh, who is another one of Miss Carter's uh advisors, myself, Dr. Beatty and Dr. Hurrell. Jules Harrell, and when he works, he called his work song. So yeah, put the work song on, put rubber band man on Kwanzaa. This is uh from uh, actually, from us, the organization US. This is a copy that used to belong to one of uh, my Jegnas, who's been an ancestor now for some time, the great Nzingar Radabisha Heru, the former president of the Association for a Study Classical African Civilization. She gave this to me, Kwanzaa First Fruits. She's a member of US. And there, of course, is the US logo. May your holiday be with much happiness. So, if you're in Kwanzaa, the first day, is, as you say, Professor Hunter, Monday night, the 26th, is Umoja, how Kwanzaa is set up. If Y'all want to watch that y'all can look at it later. You can pause It gives you the symbols here And I just pulled this one because it's old. I like to do that. this is original makeka the mat. So you put your mat down you get your um Mishuma the candles seven candles red black and green it goes through the principles there and what colors should be there The black candle umoja is the one you like uh for everything the the corn you have that there the air corn represents the offering uh, and, and the produce, the children, uh, you have the Zawadi, gifts. Gifts, we talk about books. Give books or something you made yourself or something you bought from black people. And of course, the greeting that we'll do Monday night, Habarigani, what's the news? The answer will be the day of Kwanzaa, Umoja, unity. Habarigani, day two. We know that that's Kujichagali, self-determination. Habarigani, what's the news? Day three, Ujima, collective work and responsibility. Habarigani, day four, Ujima and that's cooperative economics. Um, then day five, Habari Gani Nia, purpose, as in Nia Long. All these people running around named for these principles because Keith Swahili, we got Nia, purpose. Day six, Kuumba. What's the news, Habari Gani Creativity. And finally, we'll be back together. Imani is the first of January, John Henry Clark's birthday. Faith, faith to believe with all our heart in our people, and the righteousness and victory of our struggle. So, Prof, I guess we'll see each other on Saturday. We'll see each other during the week, but on Saturday, uh next Saturday, will be Kuumba to do as much as we can and the way we can to leave our community more beautiful and beneficial than when we inherited it.
0: Ashay. I love you. I love, yeah, I love you. you too. Happy, everything, y'all. See you in them uh in them Nubian streets because that's the only place I'm gonna be over these holiday breaks. And, <laughs> and y'all stay warm. It's cold as oh my gosh. Yeah, but listen, we can't complain this winter. This is the, we need the earth to free the earth to freeze a little bit, you know. Like and get out there and breathe some of that cold air. I was out there this morning, not for long, though, because my whole <laughs> my whole I was like. I was like, this is yeah, I gotta get in the house. I'm worried about them people stuck though in
1: or oh. maybe in airports or something like that, or put they put you up That's what I'm worried about.
0: And unhoused well, the people who are unhoused, uh, yeah. God bless, you know, like that. Yeah, I this is not out. the time, you know, to not be with a home, you that's know.
1: Right. So, like and I was out there yesterday, I went down to Union Station and went around and as the sun started going down you started seeing people making their way listen those of you who are in law enforcement those of you who got a supervisor telling you got to get rid of people and put them out have a moment if you got to have an argument if you got to slow it down to somebody from the city or when it comes in it's this is no joke don't be putting people outside if you can help it because that's going to eat away your humanity in a way that i don't wish that on anyone oh, you know so anyway
0: Thanks, y'all. Love you. love you. Love you too. See y'all in the streets. Have All right. Bye. All right. Let me do this. Hey. Yes. yes.